right now we're looking at Colossians. And we're actually going to get to actually read the text this week. Uh, last week we did a lot of the overview and sort of the occasion of Colossians, the origin of it, you know, who wrote it, to whom, why, all sorts of that thing. Um, I'll breeze through a couple of these slides here just to kind of fresh everybody's mind. Um, but then we'll get into we'll get into Colossians and we'll get from about Colossians 1 uh, to probably verse 8, but we'll see. Um, we talked about how Colossians were the prison epistles along with uh, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. We talked about what those were, why they were called that. Uh, spoiler alerts, because they were written from prison. We talked about how, where some of these places that we talked about are located. If you like maps. So Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote to Philippi, uh, Ephesus, Colossae, and Philemon was a member of one of those congregations in that area. We talked a little bit about the church, how they were uh, probably very likely poisoned with this false teaching of what they call the Colossian heresy. And we kind of put that together based on the things uh, Paul warns against, things he speaks against, cautions against, um, and, and in our letter. We talked a little bit about the church. Um, mostly, uh, just, just know that they've been taken captive by sort of uh, what he calls philosophy and intimacy. Probably those were some sort of uh, cultural Greek philosophies. We talked about how even today we know uh, believers of all kinds, we are kind of uh, surrounded by other faiths sometimes culturally. When we get out in the world, we, there's those uh, traditions of man that kind of hang on in the world that seep into our faith and in our churches sometimes. And so uh, the, the church of Colossae is all victim to that. And I think it was right around here that we left off last week. And so I'll talk pretty briefly about just some of the themes. And these are just stuff to look for as we get throughout the letter. And we'll, uh, we'll refresh on these because almost all of these things Paul will at least touch on in the few verses we're going to read today. Uh, but as we go throughout the letter, I want you to kind of be noticing these because uh, one of the reasons I like doing text studies is because you actually read the letter the way it was meant to be read as a letter. <laughs> Sometimes when we're referencing verses, if, and I know I do this in preaching, but there's some guys who will just machine gun through verses on top of what they're talking about in preaching. And you're like, I can't even write those down, let alone go back and tell you what they were talking about or what they <laughs> And so uh, I like them to really just sink our teeth into it. That way when you're reading Colossians 2, you kind of can remember what Colossians 1 was about. When you get into 3, you still know what he's talking about because he's, he's building this whole thing together. Um, I had somebody say one time, you know, imagine if you had sat down to a loved one and you had written them this long, heartfelt letter, and someone chopped it all up and kind of pieced it together and just sort of picked and chose what they wanted out of it. And uh, that's not to say topical preaching is wrong, but in terms of our understanding, uh, it, it helps to look at the, the text and context. So, some of the big ideas connectedness. We see this just right off the bat when we looked at the letter a little bit last week, how he's name-dropping all these people. He's talking about them really intimately, uh, how he knows them really well. And we talked when we talked about the church, we mentioned that he had never uh, never met these people. He didn't come to this church. And in spite of that, he's very connected to them. And we'll, we'll see how that plays a role all throughout the letter. Uh, of course, there is the... It might be surprising, uh, being Christians and in a letter to a church, that we're going to talk about Jesus. Uh, but Christ is a big, 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 uh, heavily talked about player in Colossians. Probably more than 
just about any New Testament book outside of the Gospels, he talks a lot about who Jesus was and why what Jesus did is so important. And then in sort of his typical fashion, he'll tell you all these things about uh, the Lord, about Jesus, and then he'll tell us in chapters 3 and 4 why what Jesus did is so important. So I'll breathe for a second and give you guys an opportunity to chime in. Got questions or thoughts on uh, Colossians in general before we dive into chapter 1. All right. Cool. So, I found this little picture. Uh, it's a line from, I wish I remember the song, that's Johnny Cash. Uh, you're shining your light and shine you should, but you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I don't know if you've heard this expression before. Uh, the idea that somebody's got their head so much in the clouds that they're not very useful. And I bring that up because it's catchy and witty, and I like Johnny Cash for the most part. But Paul will totally just knock that completely off the table and say that's not true at all. When we look into the text we're going to look at tonight, that is verse 1 to verse 8, uh, he is going to talk about just the more devoted to God you can be, the more heavenly-minded you can be, the more spiritually-minded you can be, uh, the better a person on earth you are going to be. And uh, I don't know if anybody else heard that expression before or heard that song, so heavenly-minded you know earthly good, but uh, clever but not biblical. Like a number of things, I'm sure. So, I just thought that was funny. All right. So, um, <clears throat> who wants to volunteer to be our reader tonight? I'll probably have you read about five times over, so no pressure. But, all right. Cool. Go ahead, and we'll start off with just the first two verses of Colossians 1. this last week as well, but just your pretty standard uh, letter open. It's kind of saying who he is. And this was uh, typical of, of Greek or Roman letters at the time. You know, it was the salutation. He introduces himself. He says who he's writing to. And uh, typical of the Greek culture was uh, a form of a greeting that often actually in their culture would invoke uh, some god or another, whether that was of the harvest, if it was that time of year, whether that was a particular feast that was coming up, of the wine, if it was this time of the season, of the many fertility gods at the time, it was a different time of the season. You all right? Okay. It's good. <laughs> only had that happen once before. I wasn't going for two, so. Um... So Paul, in kind of again, kind of one of the things he likes to do is he'll he'll say something that's almost like their culture, but he'll kind of make his own little twist on it. And because obviously he says, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father," he obviously invokes his God, our God. Um, I don't know how much you guys have talked about the the wording Paul uses, uh, but in terms of apostle, what's an apostle? Who knows what an apostle means? Yeah, that's exactly what it, it literally means. One cent. Um, a good English uh, comp would be an ambassador, an emissary, someone sent as representative of somebody else. 
the Saints. I believe it was in Jude, the last week before this got a lot of conversation. But uh, saints is one of those funny English words that we pretty much entirely made up. The Bible says the holy ones. Every time he talks about Christians, and Paul addresses all his letters this way. Uh, why am I making fun of our word saints? Uh, mainly because, as you've probably heard, um, people will... We'll, we'll insert these different words and we'll kind of put a lot of weight on them or a lot of tradition on them. And something I learned pretty early on in the church is we talk about Bible things using Bible words. And we are the saints. Uh, we don't pray to saints. We don't worship saints. We're not special or different than, you know, we, I'm not different than you guys. <laughs> I'm not more saintly or anything like that. Um, well, in that verse 2 there, through the saints and faithful brethren. Exactly. They're saying they're, they're both the same, right? This is a great this is a great proof text for that. If you don't happen to have a Greek manuscript in front of you and just you know are familiar with Koine Greek, that's not your forte. Paul does the work for us. He says to the saints who are faithful brothers and sisters. So there's my version says to the saints and ah yes. So there's two. I was wondering how quickly we were to get translation notes. Yes. And to touch upon the, the reference. Going back and studying it, we'll touch upon it again Sunday morning, but, but since you brought it up, uh, Jude is referring to Enoch's prophecy and the situation there is, his word can have different meanings. And so Enoch's prophecy is referring to more of a Hebrew use of the term, which means holy ones, which yeah. does go to what Daryl read the other night with Matthew 25, 31. It is referring to angels, the holy ones, angels coming back as as shown because the Bible is its own best uh, commentary. Uh, but the use in the New Testament does change and it, and it does include those who are sanctified, those who are called out us. Yes. So. Yeah, so that's the that's the real fun thing about it. If you're ever reading the New Testament and the author or if you're reading the Gospels and it says somebody quoted and they quote a passage from the Old Testament, uh, if you ever go you know, flip through your Old Testament, it might not match 100% in terms of the words. Because what you're reading in the New Testament is a translation, let's see, from at least uh, Aramaic to Hebrew to Greek to English. And for some reason, if you just go Hebrew to English, instead of jumping through seven hoops, it doesn't exactly look the same. Like, I remember when we were in computer class in my sophomore year of high school, one of the funnest things we did, when translation things online were a big deal. We just put a word to translate to seven different languages, and then before you get it back to English, it's, you know, Robot becomes thank you or something like that. We got really bored. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> back to Colossians. Um, so you mentioned yours says uh, to the saints and to brothers and sisters. So uh, if I say the saints and the brothers and sisters, that can kind of sound like I'm making classes of people. Uh, but if, <laughs> even if we were to take a more literal reading there, um, and is not really in the Greek, but even if it was, if I said to the holy ones and the brothers and sisters, well, y'all can be holy and still be my brothers and sisters, <laughs> right? It, and so when I, I don't know English well enough to talk about the Greek, so if, I, if we have English teachers and I'm using the wrong terminology, forgive me, but if I've got two nouns and I say, you know, the saints and the brothers and sisters, it sounds like I'm talking about two people. But if I use two adjectives and I say you're holy and your family, I'm clearly just talking about the same group of people. I've totally lost everybody yet. <laughs> Sorry. 
He's using, he's using two categories to refer to the same group. Yeah, two descriptors is probably a better way to put it. But he's talking to the same, same group of people, like I said. And is not really in the, uh, the Greek. Um, That's exactly it, yes. That's that's a that's a good way of putting it too. Yeah. My, you know, loving and caring grandmother. Saying I don't have two I'm not talking about two grandmothers. <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, and I, I feel like this verse is probably where it makes it the most explicit. Um, but the fact that he starts every single letter that way. I would hope would give us some indication that every time he writes a letter, he's he is addressing the whole church I and mean, he talks about the behaviors the whole church has. Um, if uh, any, I'm not getting the whole rabbit hole on saints unless anybody's got any further questions about it, we'll just end up taking our whole night and be talking about saints and what saints are and aren't. Maybe, but the truth is, like, the church is so new, there probably really is no other Christians. I mean, by the time of Paul founding these churches, um, especially with this not being one of the original churches he planted, I mean, your oldest Christians are people who have known the faith for probably like five to seven years at this point, depending on the dating of when X, Y, and Z happened in terms of Paul's ministry. But... That's the other reason I don't I don't get the distinction for the use of the word saints is because we the people who use the word saints talk about people who have accomplished a certain amount of things in the church. Well, the church has barely existed as of right now. How how is he addressing? I don't know. Anyway, like I said, I don't get down a rabbit hole. Nobody has any questions about it. But if you do, throw them out there. We'll see if we can talk about it. But um, Paul calls himself an apostle. That's pretty standard. Uh, like we said, that is one cent. He says, an apostle by God's will. And uh, we'll see that the will of God features uh, again a little bit more in chapter 1. But if you know about Paul, uh, Paul believes very strongly that his conversion was a gift from God. I mean, did God need Paul? Paul needed God, but... I mean, the, go ahead. I'll let you finish what you're saying. Well, I was just saying the sense of, you know, what he had been doing to the church and then um, where he went from that point because he was saved. Yeah, I, Paul certainly needed God's intervention and God's will. But I mean, like, did God, creator of the universe, master of everything, need Paul, this one guy who was persecuting the church? I mean, if you think of what, the life that Paul lived, uh, Paul could just as easily have been flipped off the face of the planet and uh, no one lost any sleep, right? <laughs> In terms of uh, the disciples. I think he was a good one to do this work. And I think God probably knew that he was a good one to do this work too. From his history and his past where he was a persecutor of Christians and now he just reversed that role. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether God needed him, but uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I, I just I 
I probably should have phrased the question better, but it was kind of rhetorical. This is like I just like God didn't really need any of us, right? I guess I think of Moses. He says if you know if God wanted to make the rocks cry out and worship, but I, I say that because uh, Paul's inclusion here it just really shows us like how much Paul feels like his current life only exists the way that it does because of God. Like he is he is so convinced that like his way of like his his way of living is a blessing. His everyday is a blessing. The fact that he gets to get up and do this, he is so appreciative of the life he has that he knows it is completely at the will of God. And if you look at the way Paul talks about contentment, the way he talks about perseverance, the way he talks about uh, his love for ministry, it is so clear that he values his own life as like nothing. But he knows every day was a gift from God. And... Uh, if you go and look at the conversion account in Acts 9, um, where Paul is struck blind and he's told to go to the city, and I always think about that moment in terms of that period of time between Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, he strikes him blind, and he says, go to the city where you will meet a man named Ananias. He doesn't tell him he's going to make him unblind. He says, he's been struck blind, he says, go to the city. I wonder how long Paul is wandering around blind, uh, needing the help of everybody around him. He starts to think, well, this is probably it for me. Because I'm just thinking, if I'm Paul, and I've been spending my livelihood persecuting the church, and then God shows up and tells me I'm wrong, <laughs> I'm counting the minutes, right? Like I'm thinking, well, okay, it's been, it's been a good run. I guess I was wrong. Uh, this is it for me. And so when he is given his sight back and then the will of God is revealed to him and, and he's caught off in the ministry and all these things start happening for him there is really like this near death experience that happens for Paul that gives him this new lease on life and that's where I feel like if you put yourself in the mind of Paul like every day is a gift that's why he's like alright I gotta go over to this city if they kill me they kill me <laughs> I could have died this many years ago Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, we talked about this uh, a little bit last week, but just, you know, God, the way God sees versus man sees. Yeah, God certainly used Paul. They talked about that from Diddy and Josh. Paul had it. There was no future advancement. He had one guy that he was working for, and that was Jesus. That was God that he was working for at that time. And he knew what he needed. I feel like part of his perseverance is because like he truly believes everything he has is just at the will of God. I know I've said that like four times, but I I guess when I just think of my own life, eh, maybe this is just me, but I kind of have a tendency to think I'm where I'm, I'm I am where I'm at in life because of my decisions, right? Like I kind of tend to think that I am the things I have. I can kind of get the feeling of like you know I do all X, Y, and Z, and I deserve that, this, that, and the other sometimes, and. I am just amazed by Paul's perspective, and I think that's really just what allows him to do the things he does. Paul said he did everything he did in 
Yeah. towards the end of his ministry where he says exactly what you're saying. He's, even his whole life he's done in a good conscience is a, a lesson unto itself truthfully. Um, and a fascinating study. But no, you're right. He says he's always even when he was wrong he felt like he was always trying to seek the will of God. Which is why I say I think that's almost a lesson. We can be Christians and persecute Christians too. For example if you got a problem in the church one group going for this, one group's going for that, and you start taking sides, you're going against the gospel right there. You True. can't take sides. Wrong is wrong and right is right. So you can't take sides for people. And a lot of people could have different ideas. Oh yeah. You're supposed to be a Christian to the one that's wrong, try to change them, and if you go against them and start talking about them, you're persecuting them. We're not to persecute them, we're to straighten them out. Yeah. And we can persecute them. Even the Bible tells us that we can crucify Christ ourselves again if we live wrong, knowing yes. better. That we can put him on the cross again. It goes back to the, uh, the faithful part of verse 2. Right. We to be faithful to each other and to God. So. so, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Uh, grace and peace, pretty much how Paul starts most of his letters. I uh, heard a very interesting kind of deep dive on that. Uh, peace, obviously, or what he says in the Greek comes really originally from the Jewish greeting shalom. Um, if you have any Jewish friends or if you've ever heard that word before, shalom literally is just Hebrew for peace. And uh, they talk about how the word Paul uses for grace sounds really, really similar <laughs> to just the standard uh, word that really meant greeting in Greek. And so Paul is kind of speaking both languages in the sense of uh, saying grace and peace. He's kind of mimicking the Greek and the Jewish uh, expected introductions. And, and like I said, the, the Romans would often start their letters greetings and they'd invoke some God. And what Paul says, grace and, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And then go ahead and read verse 3. We give thanks to God and we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So this is going to end up sounding really choppy because depending on your translation from like verse 3 pretty much to verse 14 is anywhere from like two to four sentences. Paul Paul's a fan of the run-on sentence at some point where you can see so as we do this verse by verse, it might sound choppy at times, but I love that the first thing he says, the first thing out of his mouth is that we always uh, thank God. I'm asking you to read, but I got a different translation. I, really get, I should have brought something to be on the same page here. It's good. They're listening to you, and I'm going to quote something that's totally different. But um, I do believe just about every translation says always at some point in that verse. You can correct me if you don't have it. Be edified, but there is this assumption that he says, like, y'all know I'm praying for you. He says, when I am praying for you, I am always thanking God. 
I don't, there's just something about the wording of that, the way it's phrased. I mean, how, how many times a week do we tell somebody we're praying for them? You know, I mean, it's, it can almost become kind of trite at a certain point. And I really appreciate that not only does he, he tell them he's praying for them, as we get into verse 4, 5, and 6, he tells them exactly what he is praying for and why he's praying for them. But at least the way mine is worded, it is that I thank God when I am praying for you. So it's like, I, it's assumed that I'm going to pray for you. You're my brother and sister in Christ. You're my family. But I want you to know when I'm praying for you, I'm thankful just that you are out there doing your thing, being faithful. I think that's interesting. Go ahead and read. Read the rest of the sentence, wherever, that's, wherever the natural stop is there, and what you've got. Since we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, and of your love for, uh, for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since today, you heard it, and you have raised of God the truth. Okay. I'm gonna sorry, I'm gonna go ahead. Is it still is he still going? Yeah, I still have a bunch of comments. Yeah, yeah. I'll just I'll stop you there for now then. Um Yeah, like I said, he would if he had an English teacher that I had, he would have had a few splices in there, some notes. But um I'm making fun, but really you can see from his life these are all linked ideas for Paul. As we go through verse four and five, he talks about when we pray for you, we've heard of your faith, of your love, because of the hope. And he goes on to talk about how the hope is the word of truth and the gospel, and we'll deal with the gospel in verses 6 and 7 And as he continues talking about that. But right off the top, Paul talks about these three ideas that are going to be all throughout the letter, and that is faith, hope, and love. Uh, someone read for us 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Flip over there and find us. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, the greatest of these as well. Thank you. So, yeah, we've probably heard that triad before. Um, when Paul starts 1 Thessalonians, he says something very, very similar to what he says here in Colossians. Um, we talked about their faith in Christ, their love for again the saints, we have that word the saints, and the hope reserved in heaven. So I, the way this is actually kind of, again, this is another one of the way it's worded. Hope here is not just like an emotion or a feeling in the sense that we talk about hopefulness or that we hope something will happen. But, but it's actually used as sort of this, it, it's a thing that exists and that is for sure and that they are, uh, it's a specific thing that they are hoping for. I think the uh, one of the translations, I can't remember which one I read, but it says, the thing uh, which is hoped for. Um, and of course, as he goes on, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel, and he says, it's, it's given us a hope for this thing that is reserved up in heaven for us. And he's talking about their eternity, about what awaits us. But I... Again, I think sometimes hope is one of those words we use. It's sort of almost wishy-washy, you know. 
I remember leaving the house a little bit later. I mentioned, it's like, well, I hope there's no traffic and I get to work on time. <laughs> but Paul was like, no, no, no. This is, a, this is a hope that is reserved in heaven. It is a specific thing that as Christians we all can long for, that we're waiting for, that we know uh, awaits us. And he says it's reserved in heaven, uh, which is supposed to be this idea that it's secure. It's safe. The hope is reserved in heaven because it's, we know it's safe there. Heaven is where God is. So, of course, our hope is kept safe with God, which reminds me of uh, Matthew 6.19. If someone wants to read that for us, Matthew 6.19. But we talked about this last week, Sunday night, two Sunday nights ago. We've been talking about it at some point. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. Thank you. So yeah, we talked about that a whole lot, I think, either Sunday a week and a half ago. I can't remember exactly when. But again, it, it kind of goes back to, at least for me as I'm reading all this, when you we talked about just how he firmly believes he, his ministry and his life exists at the, the complete will of God. Paul is not hopeful for physical or earthly things. He says, I don't hope in earthly things. I don't place my trust or faith in earthly things. But he says, the hope, the, the thing I am hopeful for, the thing that gives me hope is reserved in heaven. Yes, yeah, definitely the same people. So it's the same people in the church. The love that they show for their brothers and sisters. Right? Absolutely, so, yeah. What he's saying that there is reward laid up in heaven for you for that. Yes. Uh, so let, let's read it again. Uh, verse 3, we give thanks to God and, and to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So what is being said is that he has heard of their faith. He is writing to commend them and telling them that he is giving thanks for them uh, to God and that they have heard the word and that they have this, this hope and faith and that they have received the gospel and they know that there is a reward laid up for them in heaven and he is commending them on following the path. And so he has heard of their faith and their love for one another, which is an evidence of their faith because, we're, you know, how are, is the world to know the disciples of Christ but their love for one another? But he is thankful for them because of the hope which is laid up in heaven, of which they heard before. They, they have followed the gospel, and they, they have gotten on Christ's path. Uh, and so he is giving thanks for them um, and for the efforts that, for, for learning the gospel and, and I'm going to 
Yes, to everything you said. But how did they show that hope? Say again? How did they show that hope? They showed it by loving the saints. Is that what I mean? Well, um, really, the way the sentence is structured, and, and this is where I was kind of making fun earlier, but I'll be careful. I don't want to sound blasphemous. But it's, it's really wonderfully constructed because they're all dependent. Well, do we have any English teachers in here? Because like I said, I thought, boy, language arts is a long time ago for me. But I believe they're called dependent clauses. But anyway, it's, they're all structured on one another. They're all tied together. It's, they have the faith in Christ, which is expressed through their love for one another. It, it is what gives them hope for the things that are reserved in heaven. And, and yes, like you mentioned, the, the hope for what is reserved in heaven is also why they have faith in Christ. So that if at any point, like Dan, you mentioned, you, said, you, you feel like you're just repeating yourself at some point. Well, the sentence is almost structured to make you think that way. Because they are, if it sounds circular, yes, it is. You, you cannot have just one of faith and hope and love. If you have faith in God, you love your brothers and sisters, and you are hopeful for your eternity. How can you be hopeful for an eternity if you do not have faith in God? That kind of makes sense? So these, like I said, I was kind of making fun earlier, but really it's, it is all laid out the way it is quite beautifully. Because all of these ideas, specifically the faith, the hope, and the love, are very tied together for him. At some point, that that I answered the question you were asking. Yeah. Okay, good. When a person already the gospel, what did they receive? Say again? When a person already the gospel, what did they receive? They received the hope of a known man That reference in First Peter is a great one for what I was talking about earlier. That it, it's not a blind hope, it's not a blind faith of just like, well, I hope I'm going to end up in heaven. I, like what you, I appreciate you bringing that up. But yes, we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. And this hope comes from the fact that they heard the word of truth. And, and I think a strong emphasis should be made there that truth is not subjective and truth can be learned. And, and God's, God's truth, God's word gives us hope. It gives us instruction. It gives us something to look forward to. It, it's yeah. No. You, yes. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to give you a fine look. If I did, I think I just had some caught in my throat. <laughs> I, I was about to stutter and be redundant again. <laughs> So yeah, all of those three ideas are very closely tied to what he goes right on, keeps going into. Uh, I'm going to read uh, from my translations because it's what I got in front of me. So, so cause I was I was getting confused. If you listen to you and they're trying to make the points I made with the structure on the way this is worded, but um, you have all. Well, I'll just start from the top. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. So, in the first few verses, he's talking about faith, hope, and love. 
and he goes tran transitions or segues right into uh, Ben, as you mentioned, the word of truth. And so you might be thinking, what is the word of truth? He follows it right up and he says, the gospel that has come to you, which of course we know the gospel just means the good news. And he goes on to talk about how it is bearing fruit. And I love this idea um, as he talks about how the gospel bears fruit within us. And I want to, uh, just to kind of think about, throw this around for a minute here. What does it look like for the gospel to bear fruit? Definitely. Not just one answer there. So yeah, that's, I would say that's part of it for sure. When the gospel is burning free, when you see Christians out in the out in the open, you might not know their name, but you can watch them yeah. and tell they're a Christian. You see fruit of God right there, child of God. Absolutely. We do not go around as Christians trying to find another Christian doing something wrong. We're not to judge. Yep, yeah, that's certainly. We're to lean on each six, other. I We're not on a fault-finding mission. Right? Fault-finding is not uh, the problem. God knows the faults. That's the reason Christ died on the cross, because we had faults. True. But we're not to go be fault finders. We're to lean on each other. No, and if you look at where he says bearing before fruit. Before I go and point my fingers, I need to, I, I have to straighten Wilk and Cherry out. That's true. Yeah, Same nowhere day. does he say in bearing I fruit, go today. around and fix each other. I'll have to do it tomorrow. The next day I'll have to do it again. The next day. All Christians have to straighten themselves out. Yeah. We're not fault finders. And if somebody's in a fault, try to help them out. So we'll try to get uh, finished talking about verse 6 here in a couple minutes we got left. But yeah, all the answers we talked about in terms of bearing fruit, good answers, and they're great answers because truthfully they come from the text. It's, he says it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, which we talked about sharing the gospel. Uh, we can see it bearing fruit in our behavior, which goes back to what we were talking about, the love and the faith and the hope in, that they have. And he says, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. The idea is if I, I appreciate God's grace, and this kind of ties into what you were saying, if, if I really appreciate the grace God has for me, how can I go around and find fault with other people? I think it's... I wish I could remember this off the top of my head. But the, the, uh, the unforgiving servant, the parable of the unforgiving servant. You know? if, when we realize the great, great, great debt we have been forgiven, how can we go around Lord, no other people, their faults, their debts. Um. We should want to share our <coughs> That would be growing awesome. I, I can't really hear, I'm sorry.
Absolutely. And that's funny you use both of those words. That's actually the next verse we were going to get to where he says, And you learned all this from Epaphras, our dearly beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ. Um, and so Epaphras is sort of his, Paul's source on the inside here. But yes, he talks about him. He is a fellow servant. He is a faithful minister. And so that's another of those situations where the words define themselves. What is, a, what is a faithful minister or a servant of the gospel? Well, clearly it's somebody who goes around uh, praising other people. Because Epaphras was sitting here telling Paul, like, man, you're not going to believe these people there. What they're doing, they're growing the church, it's bearing fruit, they're having love for one another. Because Paul says, he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Well, I got to verse 8. Any other thoughts on sort of verse 7 or 8 since I kind of just threw those out there? So we got just a couple minutes. about growth, he talks about bearing fruit, and I don't, I'm not trying to disagree with what you're just saying, but I'm saying, really, even if we just live the way God calls us to live, would we have to tell anybody, really, what, like, I, I kind of tend to think if we all live, if all Christians live the way we were called to live, we would have to be very little of formal evangelism, <laughs> truthfully. And you know that because just in this whole paragraph, he talks about bearing fruit and how the church is growing. And we know it's growing because we talked about how he didn't even plant this church. This church was an overflow of other Christians. So we know the church is growing. He talks all about their faith in Christ, their love for one another, the way they're treating each other, the way they're being faithful, the way they're obedient to the gospel. I don't want to minimize evangelism, but really nowhere in there does he talk about evangelism because... Their actions are doing wonders in their communities. Like the way they are living their lives has so transformed where they're living. And he doesn't even really get into what we would kind of think of as traditional evangelism. So I'll go ahead and pause there for this. Thank you guys.